received so many great messages from our listeners regarding Stranger Things and the obvious love that a lot of our listeners have for it. So Tim and I decided that for this fourth and final season recap in our miniseries, that there's no better way to close it out than to pick the brains of some of the people we made it for. So as you're listening to this episode, you will occasionally notice something called Stranger Thoughts will kick in at random moments, and you will get uh, a little bit of insight from a particular listener who was kind enough to swing by and let us record them. You're also going to notice a shorter fact-based piece called Stranger Facts. These are Stranger Things-related tidbits that are being provided by our mutual friend Kristen Plouffe, who just happens to be a walking Wikipedia of Stranger Things knowledge. Welcome back to Don't Open This Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mike, joined as always by your other co-host, Tim. And this special episode is on Stranger Things Season 4, where we break down the influences, but never tell you the odds of... Mike! Hold on, Tim. What? Dustin, did you want to add something? Never tell me the odds. Yeah, we weren't going to. Uh, Relax, man. Sorry. Anyway, back to the show. So as my dear co-host said, this is going to be covering all of season four for Stranger Things, the part one and part two, which kind of really following our season three bits goes into that hard horror section after we dealt with possessions and blobs and all of these amorphous creatures in season three. And now we're getting into all of the kind of gruesome deaths in this one. I was a little bit surprised, but not disappointed in season four. Yeah, this is the closest to a hard R rating or like that earning that mature audiences. There are some callbacks though. I mean, it is Stranger Things. So we will be mentioning a few movies that we mentioned earlier on saying that they do make reappearances. So it won't be all horror movie references, but I do think the vast majority will be pretty dark on the dark side. And I think for the most part, it'll probably be more in line with the the thematic elements of this season, um, as opposed to some of my more far-fetched ideas last episode of uh, Affair to Remember or uh, His Girl Friday. So, Well, I got to say, Tim, there were a few heavy influences that we're going to cover, but I realized that it's what we thought were influences. So in a couple small examples, I did look up what are the Duffer's answers for these influences? Mm -hmm. And some of what they mentioned was not what I was thinking. So I don't think anything, I still think you're going to get an email from one of the Duffers (laughs) and and they're going to be like a fair to remember, man, you're getting a free t-shirt. I can see that coming. (laughs) So where do we start with this thing? I mean, everyone knows we're going to be getting to Nightmare on Elm Street at some point, but I think you mentioned Satanic Panic and that was something that was going on in the 80s. 
So yeah. maybe we should start there. So for starting off in season four, we're given the character that's new to the group, Eddie, that is the head of the Hellfire Club, the long hair, heavy metal uh, rocker that is leading he, the group. He's their DM. He's influencing the young kids. He's the kind of uh, antithesis to all of the other typical high schoolers, which, as you said, we were talking in the pre-show of there's even the cafeteria bit of him explaining all the various groups that you find throughout the high school. Uh, very, very, very breakfast club. Yeah. We're the freaks because we like to play a fantasy game. But as long as you're into band or science or parties or a game where you toss balls into laundry baskets. And you know what? One thing I, I, I've been, for weeks, I've been meaning to remember to say this. When Tim and I went off on how awesome John Hughes was, and we mentioned all these John Hughes classics, we both just, I don't know how, we didn't mention Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's been bothering oh, yeah. me ever since, because, like, that is his crowning moment. That's, like, that's his his Star Wars, and we, we forgot to mention Ferris Bueller. But that film is a classic, and it runs through every single season. There's a little wink and a nod to Ferris Bueller. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's always going to be a case, which is very um, John Hughes in most part, but specifically for Bueller of kids on the loose or the kids unsupervised um, under the noses of their parents. And that's just that's the show as a whole. That's, that's all. Very true. But if we're going to talk about satanic panic, I have a feeling that all of our listeners have heard the phrase. The devil has come to America. Dungeons and Dragons. At first regarded as a harmless game of make-believe, now has both parents and psychologists concerned. Studies have linked violent behavior to the game, saying it promotes satanic worship, ritual sacrifice, sodomy, suicide, and even murder. <laughs> but a lot of younger listeners might not know that the satanic panic was a real thing. It was a bullshit thing, but it was an actual situation. And basically what happened was in the 80s, you had talk shows like daytime talk ran the, the airwaves. Like there was Sally Jesse Raphael and Phil Donahue and the list just keeps going. And there was this one guy who was an opportunistic moron. And he was a freaking, um, like a psychologist, but he also claims that he was on to this bigger picture, this situation, um, dealing with Satanists, uh, coming into small neighborhoods and through Dungeons and Dragons and horror movies and all this stuff. He claimed that like the Satanists were taking over and stealing the innocence and the youth of our children. And somehow this moron wrote a book and got booked on all of these talk shows and it just sunk into the, the minds of moms and dads that were watching these daytime talk shows. Um, I could kind of remember my mom, she never went nuts with it, but she was concerned about several of the heavy metal bands that I loved and a bunch of posters I had up. And I had to convince her that like, they might talk about dark stuff, but we're, we're not like sacrificing goats in the backyard. However, <laughs> the satanic panic was a real thing. It was short-lived, thankfully. But because film tends to imitate what's going on around it, there mm -hmm. was this, this big list, uh, kind of a, a rush of 
of heavy metal based horror movies and satanic themed horror films in the in the mid to late 80s and it kind of bled into the 90s too but we have like a short list that we were going to run through probably one of my favorite of that grouping is black roses it was the kind of place where nothing much ever happened The nightmare of every parent in town has just arrived. The disciples of the devil are invading our town and threatening to steal our children away from us. Turn up the power! Turn up the lights! Everything your parents ever told you about rock and roll just might be true. Black Roses, the hottest band this side of hell. Black Roses. Which is technically a trauma film, which I know I'm always not the biggest trauma fan, so it was surprising. But it was, I believe it was one of the cases of like they bought the rights, but it wasn't there from the ground up movie. About the, the rock band that rolls into town and everybody, all the parents hate them and they want to drive them out and the kids are fighting to keep them there. So they end up deciding, you know, the PTA, let's go just look at the show, see how they are. And it's... They're doing ballads and, oh, this is fine. We can leave. Everything's great. And then they go into all of like their hair metal, heavy metal stuff that turn the kids into monsters and creatures and possess them. And I think that's what everyone feared throughout all of the 80s. <laughs> Plus, a lot of the bands that are featured in these films, I would have to say most of them were like light kind of hair metal, like not... Maybe a little heavier than hair metal, but you weren't getting any black metal or yeah. anything that actually would be suited to what they were saying was their mission. Yeah, it's like if Poison were a, uh, a heavy it's, metal band. But that led into a film called Trick or Treat, 1986. I've heard of raising spirits from the dead by incantations, right? <laughs> I did that by playing a record backwards. These evil people have just got to be stopped. What have you done to your stereo? I wanted the new one. Trick or Treat, rated R. It's a hard one to find. Uh, it was never really released on an authentic Blu-ray or even DVD. I, I know it's available in other regions, but you could find it streaming, and I'm sure at some point it will get picked up and put out on a streaming site somewhere. But Trick or Treat's awesome. It's about a kid who is very much like Eddie Munson, and he worships a rock guy named uh, Sammy Kerr. And Sammy Kerr ends up dying on stage and coming back and wreaking havoc as this demonic entity. Um, it's a super fun movie, and anyone who loves, like, classic old-school metal would probably love the soundtrack. There's a lot of great people on it. Ozzy makes an appearance in it, things like that. Around the same time, Hack-A-Lantern came out, like Jack-A-Lantern, but Hack-A-Lantern. That was another one of uh, very similar in tone to Black Roses and Trick or Treat. Have you seen Hack-A-Lantern? Hackerlin, yeah. Actually, I saw, I think... It's, it's fun. Yeah, like last October, they tossed it up on Shudder, and I was watching on like the, the Shudder TV where it just, I just have it, they're just changing movies, and it comes on, and it's a blast. I mean, it's it's an 80s demonic satanic slasher, and who doesn't enjoy it? And how can you not click on a film called Hack-O-Lantern? That, that's yeah, with like the that's right up there. And... Yeah, it's just too good. But yeah, I think if anyone wanted to do like a metal double feature... You could pick any of those movies we just mentioned and just piece them all. You can watch all three because 
They're an hour and a half. Yeah. Maybe, you know. So I'm hanging out with my friend TJ, and I'm sure you have a couple things to add. So why don't you take it away? So I just want to share why I love Stranger Things. It's actually kind of funny because it was one of those things that always getting advertised, and I was like, I'm not gonna watch it. So years later, I finally watch it, and then I'm like, oh, this 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 show is great. I love it because it's really original, even though it, it uses so many references to other things. Like the Demigorgons were unlike any other monster I have ever seen. So it kept me guessing from start to finish. Another thing that I like about the show is the mom, Joyce. I think her character was really unique because after a few episodes, you start to see her go down that spiral. And it's like, she can easily play the like the crazy lady who like nobody believes. But yet you have Hopper and then all the kids rally together and believe what she's saying. So she doesn't come off as like just a crazy lady just for the sake of seeming crazy. It actually pulls together and makes them all work together, which I thought was really cool. I, I think as like a full cast, it just works together because there's like, there's somebody in everybody and every character. Like there's certain traits that I relate to with everybody. And it's just like, I don't know. It's like, it's like the group that you wouldn't think worked, but yeah, works. but they do. Yeah. Very much like real life yeah. in that regard. Which similar to the, the whole satanic panic thing that we're talking about, but less on the, well, not less, not at all on the heavy metal side. The other big thing throughout the season is those kids play Dungeons and Dragons. They're evil. They're summoning the devil. They're anti-Christian. It's kind of like um, if you've ever seen Mazes and Monsters, the 82 TV movie with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks and his friends get caught up in a deadly game of fantasy. I am the maze controller. Until they take it too far. I propose we play Mazes and Monsters in a real setting. It won't be a fantasy. Too bad for one of them, because now there's no turning back. This is only a game. I know, I killed somebody. Mazes and monsters. They play Dungeons and Dragons, but then his brain fries, and now he thinks that he is his character, and he's going through the city, and they have to try to get him back and get him into counseling because Dungeons and Dragons just broke his mind. And I think that's, again... <laughs> This is what they you think know, this is happening in this town. I'm not going to be able to give people uh, specific names and stuff, but that whole Mazes and Monsters thing, it was based loosely, loosely based on a real situation. Because those parent-teacher groups and the religious right, they, they always need something to, to jam their pitchfork into. And, you know, it was like rock and roll when Elvis was Elvis the pelvis. And then it became, <laughs> the, you know, the satanic panic and... Dungeons and Dragons, which the last thing it is, is a satanic um, brainwashing thing made by evil people. It was created by Gary Gygax, and it's like a fun, creative way yeah, to, to, it's to go on adventures. Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> satanic about it. But there was a story that took every newspaper by storm. It was about a kid who went missing. And I cannot remember what the end result was. I think they did find him eventually. But he went missing. And as people, like the police, I guess, searched his room, they found some some D&D modules and stuff. And then fabricated this whole story that the, <laughs> the weak-minded children that play D&D, it can break their brains, like make their brains snap. Yeah. And the story that these people created was that this kid was most likely stuck in a D&D character mindset and was probably off somewhere like in his brain fighting like dragons and demons. It was so ridiculous. And of course, when the kid was found, it really put a nail in that coffin. Setting, August 1979. We are in East Lansing, Michigan. 
At this time, a 16-year-old boy, James Dallas Egbert III, has run away from home. When he ran away from home, there was a private investigator that kind of hopped onto this case, named by William Deere. And when he was checking out Dallas's room, he noticed a bunch of D&D memorabilia, some books, a big poster board with all of these characters on it. And in his mind, this had to be the case. Why else would a 16-year-old run away, right? So he goes AWOL on this. You know, he's set in stone. This is what happened. Dallas is in his own character world now, and he's run away to live off in this fantasy land. While this is going on, we're, we're at the beginnings of, of the satanic panic, by the way. Not full-blown, but this definitely did not help the cause. So he had TSR staff come in to try and decipher this board, to try and figure out what character Dallas could be, kind of what kind of mindset he's in, and then is having them search tunnels everywhere for where this kid could be hiding, uh, specifically the tunnels underneath uh, Michigan State University. And at this time, the New York Times have written an article that just blows up. People think that this kid has gone crazy and it's not helping all of these poor little nerds who just wanna play Dungeons and Dragons. So after searching the tunnels, these, these guys found nothing because uh, Surprise, that wasn't the case at all. So this is in August, and then in September, they ended up finding Dallas in Louisiana. And uh, he didn't go crazy. He didn't run away for any crazy things. He wasn't living off in fantasy land. Poor kid just wanted a break. Poor kid was like a straight A student and just, you know, had some academic pressure and just wanted to run away. Did they write an article to, uh, you know, clear the air? Absolutely not. So uh, this just kind of fueled that craziness. So um, hopefully that sheds a little bit more light to what Mike was talking about before. I do think that a lot of these filmmakers were like, hey, let's run with that. And there's no way the Duffers yeah. don't know about all that backstory. I mean, a so. kid gets lost with a character and it's the satanic panic. Daniel Day-Lewis does it and they give him an Oscar. Yeah, it's, it's method acting. <laughs> Completely ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Eddie Munson, I think every listener will agree whether you love him or just like him. He was the runaway hit. I mean, within 20 minutes, it's like I felt like there were memes up already of the first oh, episode yeah. airing. Like, people love that guy. Which I found him abrasive initially and i was like ah, i'm probably gonna tire of this guy and then as the season went on i was like actually he won me over i really like eddie yeah. there's like actually really no one not, i don't like i from could that not season. stand him in that first episode and yeah that's where you know i will always admit when i'm wrong when my gut instinct goes awry and when we started uh aaron and i started watching season four we were both looking at each other midway through the first episode and i think into the second episode we were looking at each other with this look of just like we both love stranger things but what's going on here because i do think the very beginning of season four it totally feels different in not a stranger things way i almost yeah. started feeling like i was watching a better version of cobra kai it, it, <laughs> it, it, it was just very odd and I, and I know Aaron was in agreement with me, and I think it's stuff like you said where they introduce Eddie in such a hype, hyperbolic manner. Yeah. And at first I was just like, is this going to be like, I was dealing with Robin and I got used to her. But then I was like, now are you going to throw this character in? Who's and he's going to be pitching at 11 the entire Yeah, exactly. He's like walking around like it's like a very Renaissance fair presentation and you know yeah. rolling his hands and presenting and and kind of like holding court i was like i don't want to watch the crow meets renaissance <laughs> fair like i want to see a character I, I like but man they really wrote him beautifully and i ended up totally digging him he ends up being that 
character who's wrongly accused. And I think a lot of people could connect to that. You know, we've all been called out for something we didn't do. And it's a shitty feeling because you're trying to explain, you know, state your case. Which leads me to a little aside that has nothing to do with the show. This is to all the people that are absolutely in love with with Eddie Munson and they think he's just the hottest, most awesome, coolest dude ever. Coming from the place of a person who grew up as a metalhead and it was friends with nothing but metalheads, all I ask is that everyone that's in high school right now or maybe in college or, or they're going to a mall or something, if you come across someone that looks like Eddie Munson, maybe give them a chance and be nice to them. Do yeah. not shun them as some weirdo metalhead because other metalheads are really great people too. That's the end of my PSA rant on, on that, but it has to be said. Be excellent to each other. Exactly. Regardless of your hair length and how many Iron Maiden pins are on someone's jacket. <laughs> so going along with the rest of kind of this whole satanic panic vibe of what happens with Eddie, which actually we should probably talk about what happens to Eddie, yeah. that Eddie ends up becoming briefly friends with the cheerleader, Chrissy, who is seeing visions or she's having some sort of trouble. So she has like the jock high school basketball captain boyfriend and she ends up going to Eddie because he sells drugs so she can find some sort of escape or release from what she's going through right now. And they end up hitting it off. And I think it's a really great part of introducing Eddie in his first scene versus Eddie in this of, okay, that's all of his for show of, I don't care about things. I'm just here. Everybody else is in yeah. high school and they're annoying. And then he goes to this and it's, oh, then you actually get to see him interacting with somebody and kind of downing his guard a little bit here. It's also a little bit Claire and John Bender from Breakfast Club. Yeah. I mean, there isn't really, I don't think they ever established like that. There, there's no romantic connection between the yeah. two of them, but there is that opposite sides of the tracks and like they're Greece. sort of, yeah, they're, see, <laughs> they're seeing eye to eye. But of course, that that's a theme that's run through many different films over the years. So I am with my friend Wendy, and I'm pretty sure she has some stuff to say about Stranger Things. I just have a little bit to say. We all love Eddie Munson, and my favorite takeaway from this season was the comparison to the West Memphis Three that I kept seeing come up, which is a really big case that I think some people know about, but maybe not everybody. It's actually a really sad case, but people should really look into it more because Eddie Munson, he's so glamorized now, and you see all these girls thirsting over him on TikTok. But like back in the day, people like that were really demonized, and the West Memphis Three, like Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, all those people, they went to jail for like 18 years for a crime that they didn't commit, which is very much like Eddie Munson was demonized after Chrissy was found murdered. So the comparisons are there and I really invite people to look into it more and do more research on the case. Did you have a favorite scene? The Max scene where she comes back and she's in Lucas's arms. I was bawling. The acting was so moving, you know, and he's like, Erica, like, I still have goosebumps just thinking about it. Obviously it's not a favorite scene, but emotionally striking, that scene will stay with me for the rest of my life. But it appears that we are, we're going to talk about right now, like we're getting into what the main influence of this whole season is. It's kind of hard to walk around it and talk about the other ones first. So I think we're, we're going to get Nightmare on Elm Street-ish with this, right? Is that yeah. where we're heading? Because we I, to. 
all the all the rest of it is kind of Eddie on the run. We have to give him a reason to run so far. Exactly. And you go, you, you've all seen the, the season, so it's not like we're going to hide Vecna till we get towards the end of the episode. Yeah, if you haven't seen the season yet, then as Dr. Chalice would say, <laughs> stop, turn it off. Yeah, really, uh, what's wrong with you? Yeah, go watch it. Come back. We'll be here. But yeah, we got Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street. Can't blame the Duffers for pulling from it, but I think yeah. the, the main thing would be, what do Freddy and Vecna have in common? You tell me, because I need to hear it from you. Well, so here's the thing. <laughs> All, all of the comparisons that people are making to Nightmare on Elm Street when they've been talking about the show aren't the comparisons that I've seen in terms of Nightmare on Elm Street. To me, it's Freddy never really ended up using people's regrets in life. It was more so like fears and things of that sort, which is very similar, Vecna, in this and case. And very Pennywise. Yeah, he ends regard. up using the, the things that people regret, their traumas, and that's what they go after them with. It's Chrissy ends up hearing and seeing visions of like her mother tormenting her. We have the other kid. <laughs> I should probably know his name. The other kid with the glasses who doesn't last long, who <laughs> ends up having a car accident that he ends up being involved in that he caused that he sees the car on fire and all of these different things that end up happening of people blaming themselves. And Vector uses that to get to them and then ultimately destroy them in a scene of, Lifting them up into the air, sucking their eyes out, breaking their bones, folding them like laundry. And I think that's the unique part of of Vecna. Like the completely unique Two Stranger Things part, which is great. To me, the biggest thing that screamed Nightmare on Elm Street this entire season is the kickoff with Eddie of Eddie is now in his trailer selling drugs to Chrissy. Chrissy's there, they're having a conversation, and then that's when Chrissy gets sucked up into the air because she's seeing visions of Vecna coming after her and she finally gets caught by him. And then she ends up getting killed, sucked up into the air and (laughs) torn around and twisted around while Eddie can just scream and watch. And then he has to go on the run because now everybody's going to think he did that murder. And that is extremely Nightmare on Elm Street with Rod and Tina. Chrissy! Tina! Chrissy! Chrissy! Tina! Wake up! I don't like this! That is completely Rod and Tina. To the point where even Rod is the the leather jacket wearing, uh, you know, delinquent. And so is Eddie. And Rod goes running to Nancy. I never touched her. You were screaming like crazy. There was somebody else there. Then you got, you have Eddie run into everybody. I did not kill her. Like it's, it's so similar, but yeah. again, it, it's something that ratchets up tension, puts a person on the run. It makes sense. So I think where Vecna and Freddie share something is, I think it's more of a thematic connection of, they are both creatures that operate in the minds of teenagers and suck their their souls and life force from them. That yeah. is really similar. But there's a lot of things in between that are different. And the moment I saw Vecna, all I could think of was like an H.P. Lovecraft creature crossed with this phenomenal artist who unfortunately passed away. Uh, his name was Bernie Wrightson. And Bernie Wrightson has a style that is absolutely indelibly his. He had a way of drawing things that you could immediately know was Bernie Wrightson. And he got famous for doing an illustrated version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And he also was huge in comics. He created the the visual look of the Swamp Thing for DC Comics. And then he went on to just illustrate so many awesome things. But one thing that is is just completely Wrightson-esque is 
that whole swamp thing element of the nose being pulled like a triangular piece of flesh kind of pulled over a skull-like nose. And it creates this like deeply set mouth and the eyes are deep set. And what protrudes is like this angular hood to the nose area. It's something that if any of you guys look up Bernie Wrights and Swamp Thing, you'll immediately see Vecna around the mouth area. Whoever created the, the different designs and sculpted the actual prosthetics, they killed this suit. And I think it's a unique enough looking character yeah. that it's awesome. But I love that they pulled some of the tendril elements of like Lovecraft and Cthulhu. And they took some of the, um, the skeletal, like Bernie Wrightson vibe of like the zombie look. And they really created a fucking scary creature. Like, I yeah. like him. I, I think he's a really cool villain. Oh, yeah. I think, like, just the visual, plus the character as a whole, I really enjoyed this season. But definitely the visual. It's that whole swamp thing. It's like uh, Dr. Powell in the void when he ends up having kind of the yeah. skinless uh, vision at the end of the, the movie. It's all of those very Lovecraftian, but also almost like Barker-esque. Yeah, there, I was going to mention, there's a bit of a Doug Bradley pinhead vibe. I think more so the majestic quality of yeah. Vecna and the fact that he is intelligent and self-aware the way Freddy Krueger can talk and taunt people. Pinhead was really great for that, you know. The box. You opened it. We came. You know, Vecna has a little bit of that, like, I'm here because, you know, because of what you've done. Like, you want this. Things yeah. like that. There's a bit of a... He kind of mind fucks people a little more than your average Victor Crawley or Madman Mars. Now you've done it. He didn't mean it, Mars. He's young and foolish and doesn't know what he's doing. Stay where you are. We mean you no harm. You know, yeah. these guys running around just butchering people. He likes to get in your head and freak you out, which is great. So, yeah, I got that for sure from his character. So Eddie on the run, even aside from, like we mentioned, Nightmare on Elm Street with... The, the Rod and Tina situation of him being on the run and trying to stay away from the law. It's also very like the fugitive Harrison Ford of the one-armed man framed for the per or the murder that you didn't commit. Yeah. And it, it's all of those types of things from there. But in terms of now that we've kind of introduced Vecna as a character, another big thing that comes to mind is the ring or Ringu, the original one or the Gore Verbinski one. <laughs> Newsweek says the ring raises some serious goosebumps. Visually stunning, it's full of jolts. The best scary movie since The Sixth Sense. Tell me, what is this you think you know? Us Weekly raves, it's the scariest movie of 2002. You'll have a spooky good time. The Ring. A rare remake that's as good as the original. We should do an episode on that. We should. Uh, <laughs> I, I like both quite a bit. So, yeah. So it introduces this concept of all of these people who, once Vecna gets his hooks in you, you start hearing that bell that's just going off for the clock. And all of a sudden you're starting to get visions from time to time and he's hunting you down. And it's once that initial stage happens, you're now on a clock of time is always ticking. It's always counting down until he finally gets to you. And that's very ring in terms of your life now has an expiration date. It just depends on when the time comes. And Ring uh, kickstarted a slew of imitators. I mean, there, there was a huge... <laughs> Some of them uh, were other Ring movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, there, there's definite pulls from Ring. And I think there's that fear factor of 
no one likes the idea of being followed. You know, even just the thought of it can freak people out. And when you think that you're being followed with the intent of, of being murdered, I mean, that's that's it's a much different thing when it becomes supernatural. I mean, once you have a character in, let's say, a film like Final Destination, there's the fear factor of the movie. But in Ring and Final Destination and all the films like it, once that character becomes aware of what's happening, it makes it even scarier for them and then in turn for the audience because now now they know that their clock's been hit, you know, and it's like you're living on borrowed time. It Follows, I think, is a perfect example of that. He told me that he passed something on to me. Something's going to follow me. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. What exactly is supposed to be following Just pass it along. It's just, here's all the rules. You know you're going to die unless, but now try and make that unless work in your favor. It's probably not going to because your odds are really slim and they're getting slimmer as it gets closer and closer. Which I think the thing that's more terrifying with Vecna is the fact that not only is it you're now on a time limit, but as opposed to any of the others or like an It Follows or something or like The Ring, other people can see this or well, it follows if they're part of the club. But for any of this of other people can see it, or at least it's in a physical space where other people can interact with it, as opposed to Vecna, that it's coming after you. He's always stalking you. You're on borrowed time. But also when it comes time for you, other people don't see this. Other people aren't involved because it's already happening in kind of that mindscape. So your friends can't assist directly unless they kind of come up with these other ideas and things, but it's not just here, get in my car. Let's get out of here. He's following you in your mind. It doesn't matter where you're driving to. And that's only the friends that don't think you're absolutely insane because you probably would only have two or three people that would be like, (laughs) I guess I'll entertain this. Uh, Okay. Everyone else would be like, you need to talk to someone, just not me. Yeah. So I guess that actually probably goes more in with the Freddy idea of, ending up getting attacked in a space that other people can't help you because it's not a physical space from there. Yeah. There's a couple more very small. um, I mean, as Tim and I mentioned, like this is definitely nightmare is one of the heaviest overall vibe influences of this season. There is nightmare on Elm street four, because most of you know, there's a whole series of nightmare on Elm street films in part four. um, Freddie actually I don't know why, but like his hangout spot is a church. I mean, granted, Pinhead also hung out in a church as well as Dracula um, in one of the older Dracula movies. Very popular. Yeah, I I don't know. (laughs) I guess evil likes to hang out in old abandoned churches. But there is a a church that Vecna looks like he's in this sort of cathedral, burned out, upside down uh, house of worship kind of deal, which gave me Nightmare 4 vibes. And in a lot of ways, like Alice, who's the, the lead protagonist in part four, her powers are, are very similar to Eleven's. So I don't know. I mean, other than that, there's like the super obvious uh, Robert England cameo, which I don't blame them. I mean, Robert England's a great actor and I kind of wanted a little more from him, like not yeah. from his performance, but I wouldn't have minded a little more of him. 
Stranger Facts. Did you know that Robert England, AKA Freddy Krueger, was not invited into the set of Stranger Things? The Duffer Brothers actually stumbled upon his audition tape when going through for Victor Creel. He was a fan and they put in the tape and Robert England was there sitting in a little bathtub just reading off the script. Stranger Facts. Which I'm wondering if it might be something that he's gonna end up being in five more. Like a bigger part. Um, yeah, and that this is just kind of like setting it up of he's partially involved. You get some background here of, oh, he was the, the father who supposedly all the family he murdered. And now he's locked away, uh, which actually when they go to talk to him, it ends up being the the other reference that you uh, mentioned to me. We, we springboard our references sometimes. It, it just happens. But Silence of the Lambs. An FBI trainee. A brilliant psychotic here to learn from you mind against mind what does he do this man you see clue for clue i'll have you catch him larry you know who he is don't you she's playing a game she can't lose tell me his name doctor to find a killer she must stop the silence of the lambs rated r everybody has seen that film clary starling and her meeting with Hannibal Lecter is so similar to Nancy. I mean, she's got Robin with her in tow, so it's a little different. But Nancy meeting with uh, Robert England's character, what is his name in the show? I Do believe Victor Creel. I think you're correct. So, yeah, like Nancy doing that walk down the hallway, it getting deeper and deeper in, into the crazier, more insane uh, criminal section I almost felt like they used the set and I know they couldn't have because that movie, those sets were struck, you know, a decade, 20 years ago, but man, they recreated a set that felt very much like the mental institution in Silence of the Lambs. And it doesn't go on for long, but it is a nice little change of pace. You know, it's a different vibe to all the other stuff that's been going on. So for anyone that somehow has not seen Silence of the Lambs, you should probably check that out because it's a great movie. It's the best elevated drama that ever won an Oscar. It's actually a big budget slasher movie, but it's, it's crazy, like the amount of highbrow nods that movie gets. I love it, but it's sleazy as all hell. So I am with two wonderful people, Joe and Kate, and they have some thoughts on Stranger Things. I really, really love the aesthetic choices they've made throughout the entire course of the series. Like, first off, they do a lot of leaning into the 80s, like the color blocks, the neons, against dark backing. But then with the upside down, that complete turnaround, the very monochromatic kind of Geiger-esque. It does have that Geiger-y feel to it, really organic, really alien, monstrous. And the Upside Down, uh, as far as I was able to interpret, it has that horror thing that I tend to love when you're dealing with interdimensional kind of messes, for lack of a better word, where it's influenced by whoever is in there. In the first season, the Upside Down is mostly like empty wasteland from what you see. They're back in season four, it's Hawkins. And if you think about it, it makes sense because Will spent pretty much all of season one in the Upside Down. He just wanted to go home. And I'm sure it just ended up shaping itself to echo that. And that would also explain the the apparent time gap 
That's a really cool observation. It is season four, and I love that as a choice, and I feel like that's gonna come back. Me personally, I was really, really fond of the, the connection that Will and his brother were having throughout this whole season. And I, I gotta say, I love that he was that he was there for him all the way. That scene in the in the uh, pizza shop, loved it. It was really well written. I loved the way it was shot. It just it felt really organic. I'm really close with my brother, and I've always kind of had that sort of older brother trying to be there and protective for him. So it, it hit right in the right spot and in the right way. I know it's kind of silly, but I'm really hoping to see more of, of Argyle next season. I just absolutely adore that character, but I really enjoyed him, and I'd love to see more of him. Stranger Facts, a visual staple of the Upside Down. Those little specks that you see floating around, you would think that they're digitally enhanced post-production, but actually those are practical. Which makes me wonder how many were swallowed. All of them. Stranger Facts. So now that we have Vecta in play, and we were talking about how he ends up using people's trauma, he ends up using people's regrets, and that's what he uses to kill them, um, he's operating from within the Upside Down. And that whole kind of cathedral that Mike was discussing is the broken down house that he grew up in that now is just the Upside Down version of that that he's operating in. And similarly, a another film from, uh, I think 2014, it was like seven years back or something like that, was As Above, So Below, the found footage film. Every year, thousands of people visit the Paris catacombs. This is the empire of the dead holding the remains of six million corpses. We go through here. On August 29th. Did you hear that? Discover its darkest secret. <laughs> what is this place? The gates of hell. As above, so below. Rated R. Which, if anybody is familiar with it, is the archaeologist ends up going down into the Paris catacombs and She's searching for the, I believe it was like the Philosopher's Stone or something to that effect. But they end up finding the hole in the bottom of the catacombs that then once they go through leads them down and then back up into another location. That's essentially kind of like how they're dealing with the, the upside down this season of going down to go up or going up to go down between mm -hmm. the upside down and vice versa. But then there's forces in the catacombs that are effectively killing different people off or it's driving people crazy by using the things that they regret, the phone calls they didn't answer that resulted in being the last time they can talk to somebody, by the car accidents or something to that effect that got somebody killed. It's very similar in that regard of how it's approaching personal hell and personal trauma for any of the characters from there. Well, this is all new to me, Tim, because I have actually not seen As Above, So Below because I'm pretty picky with found footage movies and I've sat through way too many bad ones. But your explanation of the film, I, I think it might actually check that out because it sounds good. My explanation you, it, might be better than the film. Well, um, okay. <laughs> but but usually found footage stories don't have a story. This actually sounds like it's got a pretty cool story. Yeah, it, it's an interesting concept and I know I appreciated it. I've been meaning to go back and give it another try because every so often it's found footage films aren't something that I'll just sit down and be like, oh yeah, if I have time, I'll just knock out found footage. It's Every so often, I'll give another one a shot just because it's it needs to be a, a specific mood I'm in to yeah. deal with the the shaky cam or the whole convoluted process of why are you still filming or all of those types of things. So. Well, then the next time you're in that mood, 
throw on Affliction if you've never seen it. Because Affliction is one of my favorite found footage movies. It is not a perfect film. It's it's like, I almost rate found footage movies on a different rating scale than regular films because there's these inherent problems with found footage. You need to have someone filming and then you need to somehow convince the audience they're going to keep filming and never really leave that camera. But Affliction is a, uh, are, are you looking it up to find like the year? Yeah, was uh, so Afflicted 2013? Oh, Afflicted. It's a vampire found footage movie. It's got a couple of the faults that are inherent to all found footage movies. But I swear to you guys, it's up there with Chronicle. Like, I think Chronicle is a very good found footage movie. And I like it. I like it almost as much. It's a, you know, a lower budget. But I could do like Cloverfield, Afflicted, Chronicle, maybe a couple others. But it takes a lot for me. To actually be able to sit through a found footage movie. I think They're Watching is fun. I don't if we're, think I've If seen we're getting slightly off topic. They're we're Watching allowed. is a... <laughs> it's about a like an HGTV home makeover series. And it's they end up going over into like Europe or something to that effect to a village. And they work with a woman and her husband to work on the house. And then they're doing the follow-up of, oh, we're going to go back. And it's, oh, the, the husband's gone now. Something happened. And they start doing the show, but all of a sudden all these other odd things start going on while they're filming in the town. And it's, it's fun. I mean, it's not perfect by any means, but not a lot of things are. So it usually pops up on, I think like Netflix here and there, but I think it's definitely worth like your 90 minutes. Also last off topic film. If anyone loves the old school anaglyph 3d, the, the blue and red glasses found footage 3d is not a great film. But if you watch it in 3D with a few friends, it actually is kind of a great film to watch one time for, for the 3D gimmick. It's kind of crazy that we could veer that far off on a, on a subject like found footage. So we should probably get back. So we should probably do an episode four. on found footage, I guess, at some point. I, I think we've covered the highlights in a five minute segment here. Like a little. I'm here with Evan, who has some thoughts on Stranger Things from what I can gather. My number one thing is that they better not nerf Maxine, because I know she's going to be blind, and I'm sure they're going to do some, like, Will Byers-esque stuff where she can see Vecna or something, because, you know, they completely, totally butchered my lady. So, <laughs> like, she's, she's my favorite character, or one of them. And it would totally make me so mad if they were like, no, she's blind and broken. My favorite is Robin, solely because of her neurodivergent tendencies. I really like loved her character from the very start, especially like her interactions with Nancy too, where she's just rambling on and on. I do the exact same thing. And I find myself completely agreeing with Robin in majority of the situations where she's like down at the library, supposed to be doing research and she just can't focus. And it's like, I've been there. There's also that theory about Eddie Munson where he's going to be like Cass, I think it's called, from the Dungeons and Dragons lore. I like that theory. I think it's interesting because I like the bat tattoos and stuff. And in Dungeons and Dragons, Cass is the vampire who sacrificed himself to Vecna and then comes back to life and like kills Vecna. And I think that would be an awesome redemption arc for Eddie Munson. But I also feel like it would be nice to just kind of keep him dead. Because as much as I love the character, there is so much they could do to ruin him. Where Eddie Munson was just kind of a jerk, but everybody loves him. And now he's like an insane killer that works for Vecna. One other thing on, uh, th this is 
This is a crazy one. This is about Vecna. While I was watching Stranger Things with Aaron, the whole sequence where Vecna is explaining his creation and it flashes back to when he's a young boy, all, mm -hmm. all that situation. While I'm watching it, I'm like, man, this just feels so Watchmen. This is like reminding me of when Dr. Manhattan is explaining what happened to him and how he got disassembled and then reassembled. Oh, yeah. And, and, and it was driving me crazy. I was keeping it to myself because I, I do not talk during shows. But I'm, I'm watching it with Aaron and then I'm starting to see fucking clocks and all this stuff. And I'm like, this is so crazy. This just feels like Watchmen. <laughs> and then the music's kicking in while he's voiceovering his history. It drove me so crazy that I had to hit pause. And I was like, Aaron, I'm sorry. I know you're like in the middle of this whole sequence. I'm like, but this music is either a total ripoff of Watchmen or it's the Watchmen music. I'm like, but this whole sequence is like an upside down Stranger Things version of the origin of Dr. Manhattan. And after we finished watching the show, I looked up the music cue and it's exactly the same. It is Philip Glass, who's an awesome musician. It's pieces of two of his songs, Prophecies and Pruitt Igo, I think is the pronunciation. And that exact same musical montage in that exact same order was used in Zack Snyder's Watchmen for that sequence. Like you. I didn't fit in with the other children. Something was wrong with me. All the teachers and the doctors said I was... Broken. Her name is Janie Slater, they said. She is a physicist, like me. My parents, I am 30 years old, thought a change of scenery, a fresh start in Hawkins might just We were introduced me. by a good friend of mine from college, Wally Weaver. It was absurd. As if the it world is February would be 12, any 1981. different here. Wally dies of cancer, of which they now say I am the cause. So it totally makes sense. But there is a weird connection between like the character of Vecna and the character of Dr. Manhattan, even in, in the the disconnection from reality and human existence. Yeah, how like there, the there's something more from humanity. Yeah, it's like there's something bigger, you know, and it's but I thought that was really cool. So Zack Snyder is a director that I, I appreciate his swagger and I love that he's an auteur. But I think sometimes it's an awesome end result and other times I do not like what he turns out. So I have like a love-hate relationship with Zack Snyder, but I do think his uncut extended version of Watchmen is a really cool adaptation of Watchmen. And I don't think it gets enough of a handshake because it's a good movie. I, yeah, I, like I would Watchmen. agree. But apparently the Duffers must have really dug the whole Dr. Manhattan vibe because that's got to be a direct... Because Vecna also has yeah, no pants. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so imagine a, a giant Vecna tentacle <laughs> you know, hanging from a certain location. Your Hawkins problems. I tire of them. <laughs> Still kind of going along with Vecna, or rather now going along with Eddie on the run. I know we were talking about that. Eddie being on the run, finding Chrissy, finding people starting to die. The town starts to get into that whole satanic panic mindset. And the 
Chrissy's boyfriend, the head of the, the basketball team, gets the other basketball team members together and forms kind of a, a mob to let's go hunt them down and let's go find Eddie and we'll bring him to justice or kill him, whichever comes first. They're like mo- modern day villagers from an from a yeah. old universal horror movie. Yeah, it's very like pitchforks and torches yeah. and kill the monster kind of deal. And the entire town starts kind of revving up into this with specifically them being kind of ahead of it of... He's evil. He's bringing a demonic presence here. That's the only explanation. And it's oddly enough, it reminds me of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. <laughs> Remember our old hometown? Nothing to do but watch the paint dry. I see you've made your famous Tic Tac pie. Then one day along came. You looking for me? What a bombshell! What a star! Here's dinner. What a cut! She rolls into like the every town America. You're not wrong. You're really not into like every town America, and it's she's bringing all of the raw sexuality and horror movies and all of this stuff that's just ruining our kids and polluting their minds. And she's evil and bringing demonic forces to this town, and it's it's very that, but taken to the nth degree. That's actually a fun movie too for anyone that, that likes their. I don't know, their Halloween vibe stuff mixed with some humor. You know, it's lighthearted and it's fun. I think you have to like Elvira's shtick or you probably wouldn't enjoy it. That's oh, like yeah. a prerequisite. Which, so. like, I grew up loving that movie. So it's, I have a soft spot for it to this day. I think it's still funny. It is. It's good. And all of the great double enchantress and one-liners from that film. Oh, uh, <laughs> Bloody Mary. No hard liquor served past eight o'clock. Do you want a virgin? Maybe, but uh, I'll have a couple of drinks first. If Elvira were here right now, she would make a joke about Double D and Dungeons and Dragons. She'd come up with some way to make it a a breast (laughs) joke. So, yeah, we have Vecna hunting down all of these kids. We have various murders going on at this point. We have, in the meantime, a a very different set of things going on over on the West Coast. Because as we were talking about, uh, either at the top of this show or just before we started recording... It's a very different feel and tone at the beginning of this season. And I think it might be because instead of just kind of maintaining in Hawkins, we start branching out because now Will and Jonathan and Eleven, they're living out in, I believe, California, or they're living way out on the West Coast. So it's a very new and very different feel of the Hawkins small town America and then them being over there with kind of like the Valley Boy uh pizza guy and all of the interactions there what we mean is is jonathan's gone full pineapple express like that's that's how i took that yeah him and his buddy are now very like cheech and chong which (laughs) i felt was a little disappointing to me because jonathan was such a an effective character throughout the first three seasons of jonathan helped nancy they were working on cracking the case in like season two they were working on finding out about what's going on and like what happens with barb and all of that and between season one and now we get here where jonathan kind of takes a back seat because he's just used as kind of the more of a joke at that point which i think it's just they lost track of what they wanted to do with them so it's just you're not individual characters for this story it's will jonathan uh the pizza kid all of you guys are just kind of one collective character for the purposes of the rest of this story. 
Yeah. That's what I was saying earlier on about the jarring kind of rocky start. I mean, there's some good there's some good stuff peppered out in, in the first two episodes, but I I was a little off put. I I kind of think those first couple episodes might be the weakest like like consecutive episodes of the whole show. They more than make up for it later on. But I I didn't get what was the the tonal shift of like all the characters. I felt like Jonathan like you said he seemed like a very aware person who would have been maybe a bit more um, like he would remember what went down in the previous episodes. I'm not saying that maybe they could have written it in a way that he was sort of PTSD and finding a safe place in weed. Like Chrissy, like he needed an escape from what right. he's... Yeah. But they didn't, I don't think they did a very great job of, no. of crafting it that way. It was more just like, hey, look, Stranger Things is back and everyone's silly, but Eleven is living in the biggest hell of bullydom that you have ever seen. You know, it was like, it was just so in your face that it kind of took me out of the world for a little bit, but it did get back on track. I think that's what bothered me about the initial episodes of the season is the, all the stuff going on in Hawkins and all of that going on still entertained me. But then when they would cut over to what's going on with Eleven and Will and Jonathan of, okay, I don't really like what they're doing with Jonathan this season. This Jonathan is not the same Jonathan that in season one is I'm going, I'm getting extra jobs. I'm doing extra work because I need to help out the household. And like, mom, you work so hard and I need to be able to help and do things. And then we kind of jump through all of the Jonathan doing what he can and trying to like be responsible. And then it's Jonathan just kind of slacking off and smoking weed and going and hanging out with Argyle, which Argyle, the pizza guy, finally remembered his name. It is Argyle. Shows how much I love Argyle. (laughs) Dude, don't harsh on Argyle. <laughs> and then Eleven dealing with the <laughs> worst bullies. Yeah, ever. Which I, I know I always joke about Stephen King bullies of like every bully in a Stephen King book has to be an 11-year-old frothing out of the mouth carrying two switchblades. But it's like that of everyone at the school makes fun of Eleven. Everyone is willing to just like surround her in a circle and just... No teachers, no nothing for the most part. It's just, yeah, everybody's bully 11. That's fine. Will, you just watch. And that that's what I meant by my earlier reference of saying it, it almost felt more Cobra Kai. And I'm trying to use a reference that was a super popular show so that more people would get what I'm saying. They, they take characters that were nuanced. They were heightened and stylized in a Stranger Things way, but they were nuanced. And they kind of got into what I thought was a bit of lazy writing where a lot of the problems that occur are due to poor communication amongst the, the people. <laughs> and, and, when, and when you see what these people went through prior in the other three seasons, it's harder for me to accept that they're all just being morons and not sharing important information with one another. It seemed forced. It was like, we need to get this to go here. We need Joyce to get to go here. So let's just make Murray a main character in this environment and let's make Argyle this guy that I wanted to kill for the first half of the season. (laughs) He finally grew on me, but I was just like, I don't care about your stupid like stoner jokes, man. Like it doesn't fit with what's going on. My biggest pet peeve in any movie or show or whatever the case is, don't give me a plot that can be solved with one person having a conversation yep. that needs to happen. That and I should feel like, happen. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that's a lot of what ends up going on is, well, we didn't talk to so-and-so. It's a lot of miscommunication or I didn't really get my point across or I just didn't tell them this. And it's 
all of this could be fixed for the most part with certain people just having the conversation. What? What? Dustin, where are you going? Just trust me! Come on, just talk to me! Tell me things! Which I think causes some of the, the rift in my mind for the beginning of the season, which as it goes on, like every season, as it goes on, it falls into place, it gets its legs yeah, under it, it and I stride. start loving it again. But in that beginning, you know, I don't want to get, I'm so invested in Stranger Things, now I'm watching season four, I don't want to get Lost vibes, where like, I, when I was watching Lost, I remember being so annoyed with like, a character goes to try and get some fish. They see a giant smoke monster tunnel thing, like a huge creature coming at them. They walk back to the camp. People are like, did you find any fish? No, no. Oh, is everything cool? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are you not saying you saw a smoke monster? It's that simple. You know? Did it it's make them simple. promise? Like, like, what the hell is going on? You saw nothing. Yeah, nothing at all. So I am sitting here with one of my best friends and an extremely talented co-worker, Kate. So you have a theory on season five that I'm excited to cover here. So Nancy, in her one of her dreams when mm. Vecna has her, is that there's an army. An army coming to the doors of the people of Hawkins. And my theory was, is that everyone was so upset with the death of Eddie mm -hmm. that I think they have to bring him back and everyone's theorizing how he's gonna come back. So I think he's gonna be part of- The people. army of upside downs? <laughs> yeah. Something like so that. So I think Barb. So I think <gasps> Chrissy. <gasps> I think Eddie. And I think all of his victims are going to be Vecna's army. And I think season five is going to bring all of our beloved characters back in such a, a painful way. But yes, once again, I think, you know, Carrie comes back hardcore. I mean, Carrie at her core is always a major part of Eleven. We covered that in season one and it gets even more into Carrie later. But like Tim had mentioned with these, like everybody in Carrie is such a shit in that original film. You know, those yeah. girls in the locker room, that's just like, why would you do that to somebody? It's one of the most heartbreaking openings to a film. It, it like makes me uncomfortable because I feel so bad for a fictional character whenever I watch Carrie. And I've seen Carrie dozens of times and I'm still just like, you're so fucking mean. And yeah. with Eleven, there's the whole milkshake throw on her, which is so reminiscent of the bucket blood pour. But just the way they treat her is like ridiculously bad. Yeah. Ridiculously bad. And the thing that's disappointing is the fact that we see multiple times throughout the season of her getting bullied and Will kind of stands on the sidelines just kind of watching it. But you would think that, Will, you would step in like, this girl literally saved your life twice, three times. Yeah, he's like, he's like a church mouse in this movie, in this yeah. series. He's just... which, which is really the case of, I'm really hoping with season five that we get Will to step up to the forefront and being able to do something or do something of importance because for so long, he ends up being just the, the person to rescue or the person to save or the person to fix. And then he goes from that to being part of this hive mind of Jonathan Argyle and him of none of them really do their own thing. They only do things collectively as a group to move the plot forward that season. So fingers crossed that we get our boy well to step yeah. up and do something. My last writing gripe in that whole scenario, they established Mike as an intelligent, aware, um, well-rounded kid. 
And I found it so hard to believe that he was just clueless to, you know, Eleven's like, these are my friends. And then they're like, horrible. And yeah. he, like, he picks up on none of it. He's just like, oh, hey, why did they push you and roll away? Like, <clears throat> there, there was just that. But really, that's two episodes. Like, once Joyce gets the crazy package, I think things start going yeah, in a different direction. Yeah, we're off to the races. Yeah, and then it's it like kicks in. Chrissy dies, and then the season starts. Yep, that's true. Indiana Jones comes back and makes a major appearance. <laughs> are, are we going to talk about, like, you want to talk about Murray and Joyce going on an adventure? Is that is yeah. that a good place to that, move that's to? That's an entire plot line we have it not really discussed is. yet. I actually forgot about it, even though I enjoyed the, well, I enjoyed parts of that plot line, and I enjoyed a lot of the hopper over in the, the Russian gulag plot line. My ongoing issues just with Joyce in regards to them writing her as such a strong character initially, and then over time she starts to just be a little bit more befuddled or a little bit more kind of comedy relief in a lot of these situations of fish out of water, which is kind of disappointing. But I think once she gets in with Hopper and Murray and they all get back together as that trio, that's when she ends up getting back in shape. I think I still, like I learned in that this season that I prefer Murray in smaller doses. There's a little too much Murray for my tastes in this, but I guess he does propel a lot of what's going on. And I don't really think Joyce could, not Joyce like her character couldn't do it. I just think that what the two of them pull off is so close to impossible to begin with that if it was just one character doing it, it would seem absolutely implausible. Like without a doubt, one person could never pull it off. So yeah. it does make sense that they bring Murray in. I think once they get past the dinner table scene, which is a very awkwardly weird sequence, once they're in motion and doing their thing, um, it kind of crosses like Indiana Jones with a really hokey um, comedy from the 80s called Spies Like Us. Spies Like Us. The men, Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. The training. Hands down! The mission. What's this? You don't want it! Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. We're Americans! Spies like us. Rated PG. It's like slapstick mixed with that beautiful tightrope that Indiana Jones walks of its funny, quippy humor balanced with truly dangerous thrills. I think they do a decent job of making it seem like they might get killed. It could happen. Yeah. So I was all right with it. Well, especially when we know we're getting later into the seasons that, okay, it's a big cast of characters. They might have to start bumping people off. And then we start looking at, okay, well, it can't be Joyce. It can't be Mike. It can't be Eleven. And then you start <laughs> looking at, okay, who's the the second string here? Like, we have I, the Murrays. We have, like, then we have I, the third I was, string. <laughs> I was referring to him in my own head as Short Straw Murray. That's what I was calling him when I was thinking about it. Because I'm like, when's this guy getting shot? Like, he's going to die being a hero. But when is he going to die? And well, amazingly, he doesn't. He has the protection of being around newer characters than him. So yeah. it's as long as he just stays directly next to uh, Enzo the yeah. entire duration. It's like, you came into the show a lot more recently <laughs> than I did. As long as I'm with you, you're the bait. I'm safe. Murray's like grabbing red shirt Trek characters and <laughs> standing next to him and shit. He's just duct taping Chrissy and Eddie to his front and back. And by the way, the uh, the Duffers themselves, uh, they cite The Great Escape, which is an American classic. Um, they cite that as their main influence for sort of the structure 
of all that yeah. breakout stuff. And it makes total sense. I mean, it's right on the nose. Put 500 prisoners of war in a maximum security camp. Give them sports, recreation, gardening, classes, and what's the only thing they think about? Escape. Give up your hopeless attempts to escape. We're going to devote our energies to sports and gardening, all the cultural pursuits. Meanwhile, we dig the great escape. But it's a heightened situation, like like a supernatural thing going on, so it's more exciting. Yeah, I mean, Hopper's very the... I don't know about the cooler king in this situation, but it, right. it is very, like, great escape of him setting up his plan and getting out of the prison and then having to go back into the prison or like it's very great escape or Stalag 17 or any of those like POW war movies. This will show that we do all this off the cuff. We don't sit here and, and write everything down. I can never remember the name of the Russian guard who ends up becoming the sidekick to Hopper. What is that character's name? They called him Enzo for so long because of that was like his code name okay. that I just started liking it. So by the time they introduced his real name, I was still like, ah, he's still Enzo. To well, me. so we, we call him Enzo. Everyone knows who I'm talking about. I think he is an awesome addition. I, I really like him in this yeah. fourth season. I think he adds a lot of, um, Tim and I were talking about how much the Duffers love all those 70s conspiracy movies. And I could totally picture that character being in a, a spy movie where you've got someone like a Roy Scheider, you know, who's like, that's his contact. Like he brings yeah. he, he brings what teeter totters on the California stuff being too Cheech and Chong like and too crazy. He's a good actor to help bring the Hopper storyline down to more of an adult level where I think I was more invested. I actually found myself being excited when it would jump back to Hopper in the prison, yeah. which is a good thing. Because you know? I think that runs the line of he ends up having lines or they end up having discussions that it's like, it's amusing or at times humorous, but at no point is it like you're breaking the scene into, okay, well, that's ridiculous or, oh, really? Now we're talking about this right now. And also his name is Dimitri, but I Dimitri. always call him Enzo. Um, yeah, because I remember he's also, I think, the faceless man in Game of Thrones. One of the ones that works with Arya. But all of the the duration of him breaking out and him ending up being kind of under the thumb of Enzo slash Dimitri just because he ends up holding all the power in the, the Hopper-Dimitri relationship because he has the contacts, he'll get the money, he'll get him out. That then over time, it's once his cover is blown... Now they're working together as a peer, and I think they end up working great the rest of the season. I wouldn't even have necessarily cared if Murray and Joyce showed up. I would have yeah. just been perfectly fine with Dimitri and him just palling around doing all of this the rest of the season. Yeah, it sucks to say that, but I agree with you. I think that that whole subplot with Joyce and, and Murray, it's good, but I could have just dealt with like, you know, what was it, maybe a, an hour and a half of runtime? You know, if you yeah. look at the season, I could have dealt with, with that being spread elsewhere. But we're not even trying to be, like, critical of the season. It's just the fact that we love the show. And I do think that now we're four seasons deep in this. There are some moments in all the seasons that aren't as strong as the other stuff. But I, I, I do think, once again, in the end, like, the last half, they really pull this shit together in a way that 
I found kind of stunning how epic and how really, really good this season starts gelling as those yeah. things happen. You get the you get the fake out escape, the blundered escape that doesn't work. Yeah. And then you get your big escape that does work. And we go from there. I actually think I was going to mention, like, I've covered before that I am not religious. And I don't really think that the Duffers are, are like heavily religious or maybe religious at all. But there are a lot of religious moments, nods to religion. And I think, you know, the Bible is one of the biggest, most widely known older stories out there. And there is a line when Eddie, oh, this is hard to even say out loud, when Eddie is dying, when he's speaking his last words, he grabs Dustin and, and he tells him, You're going to have to look after those little sheep for me, okay? No, you're going to do that yourself. Nah, man. And I knew that was like a Bible quote. I felt it. And I looked up Bible quotes that had that line in it. And there is a Peter 5-2 line, just as shepherds watch over their sheep, you much must watch over everyone God has placed in your care. And, you know, like, there's a bit more of a Jesus connection. I mean, both Jesus and Eddie have long hair, and they're both wrongly persecuted for, for their beliefs. And uh, like Eddie, I mean, this isn't that well known, but I have read that Jesus was known for like shredding Metallica riffs from mountaintops on occasion. <laughs> Who do you say that I am? The rock. And upon this rock, I will build what I must call my church. So I, I don't know. I mean, there's that and a few others. Robin says that she's not religious. She actually says that, but then says that what happened right now was a miracle. Dimitri, he at one point tells Hopper, Hopper's like talking about, you know, miracles and, and, and all this stuff. And he says to Hopper, like, you're starting to sound very religious. And I think that the bottom line to it all is like, believe in yourself and like make your own miracles. I mean, it goes back to like Lord of the Rings if you had to sum that up in a sentence, it's like small people that seem like they, they, they can't do big things could save everything, you know? Yeah. That, I think that's a through line with Stranger Things, so. Which I find it interesting as a juxtaposition for the entire season when the whole thing is the townsfolk against them because of this whole satanic panic of they're going to pollute the mines, they're bringing evil into this. But then you have all of this stuff of Eddie turning out to be, I mean... Yeah. I don't, I hesitate to say Christ-like, but I mean, he's guiding all of these other kids. He actually is a positive influence for the most part. He's trying to do what he can. And it's very different from what they've set him up as in the eyes of the entire town. So like, yeah. I agree as far as that. And this has like, it's a bigger picture thing too. Like Tim and I have no agenda religious wise or politically wise with this podcast, but this is just facts. Like, historically, extreme people uh, of, like, conservative mindsets and, and Christian mindsets in general have always had a problem with creativity and always tried to stifle it. I mean, you had EC Comics, all of the horror comics from the 50s. That was like parent-teacher groups and church groups. They were the ones that persecuted those people for making entertainment, you know? And yep. And it goes back to the Hayes Code, and it goes forward to the PMRC, and, you know, a lot of you younger kids are, well, <laughs> a lot of you younger kids don't even know what physical music media is, but kids in their, pe people that are now in their 30s might remember CDs and tapes and how they had the parental advisory yeah. lyrics on them. If you're in your 40s, 
you could actually remember before that, you know, or 50s or 60s. There was no no warning. Those things were all started by Tipper Gore and Margaret Thatcher and all these different people. It's just sort of a conservative push on kind of making creative people the outsider that are bringing the negativity in, into the youth usually. And Tim just nailed that with the way Eddie is portrayed. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's exactly what that is. I feel like since the dawn of time, it's always the resistance against the the new counterculture. Like you said, it's the Hayes Code into the Comics Code into yeah, it's all there. the parental advisory of, I think it was like Frank Zappa in court trying to defend it. And then I think John Denver ended up being one yeah, of the ones yeah. who spoke that helped the case. We should be allowed to do it. Like granted, John Denver is not exactly getting a parental advisory, but he was for the idea behind people should be free to do it from there. And then even going far, like the Satanic Panic, then we end up in the, like the 90s into the 2000s of now it's video games that are the thing that's corrupting right. minds. And then it goes from video games to now it's YouTube and TikTok and the internet and that's what's corrupting youth. There will always be something corrupting the youth until they're old enough to have new youth and then they blame something for them. <laughs> Beautifully said. Talk about eloquent and to the point. No, that's beautiful, man. But that's the truth, you know, and I think people should realize that creativity is something that you don't need to agree. Like when people make films and they make shows and they write stories, just because someone's writing a character that is absolutely fucking vile, it doesn't mean that, that they're condoning that person yeah. and their actions. It is a character. It's a person. That they're crafting. It isn't a real situation. I think we all could agree there's a lot of truly horrible things going on in the real world. I wish a lot of these groups that get so worried about what a rapper is saying or what a comedian is saying would look at what people are actually physically doing and maybe put a little more energy into, into improving that situation. But yeah, Stranger Things, I'm sure, if with the beauty of the internet, if you type in looking for some negative shit about Stranger Things. I am positive there's a couple of websites out there how your kids should not watch Stranger Things. It's like, just stop. Yeah. But it's out there if you look. So I'm hanging out with Isan, and uh, he has a lot of thoughts on Stranger Things. So Isan, what do you think about season five? Where do you think it's going to go? I think that Max is going to wake up from a coma and that she's going to be Wine. I think she could actually see where Vecna is and help Elle defeat Vecna. If Max experienced how Vecna killed her, I feel like since he got the fourth kill, she could feel wherever he is, just like how the Mind Flayer did it to uh, Will. And then the Duffer said Will is going to be like a big part of season five. So I believe that the only way that Elle could actually save the world is she needs Max and Will. So, I mean, at this point, we have the the escape from the prison. We have Joyce and Murray and Enzo slash Dimitri slash Hopper, all of them together there. We haven't really talked about what's been going on with Eleven since the whole skate rink incident. She's a milkshake right now. Yeah. And then we get the, the whole burst of anger of her attacking this girl with the, the skate, which they actually got me. I thought originally with the way they started the season of all of the kids down in the, the testing facility with Papa and her having the, they're setting up for rage issues now all of a sudden. And she ends up hitting this girl and she ends up having the other, she tries to do the attack on the bullies that they're setting it up that she's this big monster and they 
did surprise me when they ended up pulling it out, the, the rug out from under me, and it actually wasn't her. So it's like, yeah, she has some rage issues of fighting the bullies, but they're not setting this up as she's this evil force. It actually turns out to be somebody else in that testing facility. That is a, that's a quality rug pull. Let's yeah. give them credit on that. Because I was getting sick and tired of seeing the flashbacks. It was starting to drive me nuts because I was like, well, we know Eleven like flipped and, and killed these kids, but they were bullying the shit out of her and being mean to her even back then. Not, yeah. all, the, not all the kids, but there was a Scanners, which is like another movie reference. I would like to scan all of you in this room one at a time. Scanners. Ten seconds. The pain begins. 15 seconds, you can't breathe. 20 seconds, you pray it will end, and it will. Experience the terrifying power of scanners. Their thoughts can kill. Sort of a scanners situation between Stephen Lack, who plays the good scanner. It's it's this older uh, David Cronenberg film about people that have been tested on that have psychic abilities and they can make people do things and all this stuff. They can even blow people's heads up if they're pushed too far. And you've got a, a good guy scanner and a bad guy scanner, and they have a big scan off at the end of, of the show. Possibly Michael Ironside's best role. Oh, he's awesome in that. He's so good in that. For anyone that likes psychic crazy shit, definitely watch Scanners. You'll see some amazing uh, Dick Smith practical makeup effects that are they're mind-blowing literally <laughs> they're they're really really good but no man they rug pulled me perfectly because that's where i was just like enough of this bullshit let's just get on with the show and then when i realized it wasn't her it's like you got me yeah you totally got me and here i thought you were trying to like fill in backstory to suit your storyline like retroactively yeah, and like, I'm like oh, come on yeah. and then it's oh no it's not so 11 ends up getting pulled away by Paul Reiser, not Paul Reiser, but the character he plays, to go to the underground facility where they're going to help enhance her powers. They're going to bring her powers back because she's lost them. And she needs to be able to help combat the creature or combat whatever is going on. Because at this point, they're not aware that it's Vecna. So this is where we get a lot of our more very psychic influences, all of the the training (laughs) I said all of our Rocky influences. This is where she's like training for the next big fight. So take any Rocky. Plus we get a little thing we like to call good doc, bad doc, where you've got your good doctor and your bad doctor and who should she <laughs> believe and, and back and forth. What What's the what's the end goal here? But that makes it exciting. I like that. Yeah. Which So we end up getting the backstory of all of the kids there and Eleven ends up having the orderly that's with her who ends up guiding her on Papa's bad for you. Papa's trying to do evil things and the kids are all bullies and you need to believe in yourself and you need to do things for you. And over time, you end up finding out that, as everyone knows, the orderly turns out to be number one, the original test subject, who then is released, goes crazy and kills all these kids. And Eleven is forced to combat him in this very Scanners-esque Pick any of your psychic battles, take your Chronicles, your Akuras, your uh, Scanners. But they end up having this battle that then throws him into the Upside Down, where he gets Dr. Manhattan into what he ultimately becomes from there. Which kind of reminds me of, if anybody's seen Cameron's Closet from 1988. Cameron is like no ordinary child. For Cameron is able to do extraordinary things. 
But beyond Cameron's power to imagine beautiful things lies a greater, more awesome power. Now that something wants to enter Cameron's world. And Cameron is the only one who can release it. Or destroy it. Cameron's closet. Pray the door stays locked. I haven't seen it in many years. But the I whole haven't thing. seen it in many years either. So that's <laughs> many, I, many, many years for all of us together. It's enough that it, it, I just remember in regards to it that there, the child has the, the psychic powers and the father is doing the experiments on them to kind of test it out. And it ends up unlocking like this demonic force that ends up coming out of the closet. And it's very stranger things in the regards to Papa testing the children and pushing the children, and then Eleven ends up throwing one into the Upside Down, which now starts this whole thing and turns him into this evil force and opens that initial gate and all of that. So it's very similar in terms of what kicked things off. Any uh, 80s horror nerds out there that like to, to have all the deep cuts in their collection or having seen it? Cameron's Closet is now currently available to watch via Amazon Prime. Oh, there it is. Amazon Prime in general. Look at that. For an hour and 27 minutes, you too can enjoy the 5 out of 10 stars, according to IMDb. That's but, pretty high, according to IMDb. <laughs> hey, yeah. Middle, hey, it's. I was going to say it's a passing grade, but it's not. It's a 50. But <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely worth checking out just for more of the... I think we didn't have enough of the, the psychic battles or all of the psychokinetic storylines of all of these 80 movies. We're talking so much over the past 10 episodes on slashers and all of our monsters that it's fun getting more into the the psycho side of things with our the Furies and our scanners. And yeah. our... You know, we haven't made our, um, I think when we're done with this, like when this episode comes out, Tim and I will get off our butts and we'll put together that list that we promised you all in, in the first episode, like a breakdown of all the movies. But I did get a couple messages from people like asking about the fury and things like that. So it seems like there's a, a pretty big interest in our, with our listeners in like psychic horror movies. So we probably will do um, an episode on, on deeper breakdowns of those sorts of films. We only touched on scanners. I mean, there's scanner cop and the, like all these sequels, oh, of yeah. different movies, scanners Two, scanners yeah. three. There's a movie called the sender. There's like, there's a lot of uh telekinetic uh, Christ, a uh, uh, Friday, the 13th, uh, the new blood. <laughs> Oh, you no. know, get Carrie versus Jason. That that's a fun. That's a fun one. That's part seven. So I'm hanging out with my very good friend Kristen, and I know she has a lot to say. I think because in season four, music is such a big part, right? And I haven't heard enough people talk about how badass the score was in that final battle. Pretty awesome. So awesome with the running up the hill and then the Stranger Things theme song in the background and then the demo, like visually to what was going on. I mean, I'm sure we can all agree that we were all on the edge of our seats. But for, you know, the biggest battle in Stranger Things yet, that score is just, ah, chef's kiss. Stranger facts. Did you know in the final battle scene with Hopper versus the Demogorgon, the awesome sword he picks up is the actual sword that was used in the original Conan the Barbarian movies. David Harbour himself described how awesome the experience was and how actually heavy the sword was in real life. Stranger facts. I feel like most people listening probably want to know our thoughts maybe on where we think season five could go. I have purposefully not really read anything 
There's like, yeah. you know, 7,000 fan theories. But as everyone knows, because you watched the season with us, like, you know who dies. You you know what goes down. So yeah, there's all those little things. The little stuff that we've covered, the, the major stuff that we've gotten to, it's like the upside down starts splitting open town and ripping through it. And, yeah, you know, like, because Tim and I have not even talked about this. Where do you think season five is going to oh, go? Oh, gosh. We, we've already kicked past an hour already. Of yeah. So, I mean, at this point, I mean, Vecna's nursing his wounds from his, I wouldn't even say loss. It's just kind of like, they both kind of lost that fight at the end of uh, Eleven and Vecna and all of them. But even though um, Max didn't die, she ended up kind of dying momentarily. Eleven's able to bring her back, which... I don't think it's like her magic powers. I think it was just she was probably telekinetically keeping her heart pumping so she can survive kind of deal. Um, I know they don't mention that, if I recall. But it's going to be an interesting fifth season because I would want to see what happens directly after. But the only thing I've heard of so far is I think they're going to do a time jump, Mm -hmm. which makes sense to try to put things more in line with what the actual ages of the actors are now. But it's going to be interesting of... If we just opened Hell on Earth here and now it's the aftermath of all the damage and everything to do a time jump of the upset of what's going on X years later from there. That ties into my theory. I'm hoping we get full Hell on Earth of the upside down opening into it. Like I know a lot of people disparage the Neil Marshall version of Hellboy. Guillermo del Toro, like, number one of the game, number one in my heart as far as the other Hellboy movies. Get over yourselves. It's not a Guillermo del Toro movie and enjoy it for what the fuck it is. It's a yeah. decent, fun Hellboy story. Yeah, I recently rewatched it just because I had mentioned, like, it's more fun than people give it credit for. And granted, it's not the other ones that we had. It's not Ron Perlman. I think David Harbour still does a fun job. I still think it's a fun ride. And I absolutely adore the end scenes of when hell opens up and you have, it's not just like demons. It's all of these weird eldritch creatures of just like coming out and all of these tentacles and teeth and eyes and hands and just consuming people and tearing them apart and flying into the air and giant creatures just walking through bridges. And I want that to happen in terms of the upside down opening up. Because we've seen they have all of these creatures of, Okay, we know they have the Demogorgons, they have the Demodogs that turn into the Demogorgons, we have the flying ones, but those can't only be kind of the two species in all of the Upside Down. So I'm really hoping they kind of open it up from there and we kind of have the the final season being the the full Hawkins Upside Down battle. I want to weigh in for two seconds on David Harbour's Hellboy. I truly believe that if they cast a great actress as the lead villain instead of Mila Jovovich, if they got like a Kate Blanchett quality actress to play your lead villain, if they had maybe another $10 million to create a little bit more of that full Hellboy and Hell on Earth vibe, and if they tweaked the script so it didn't have like such a clashing back and forth tone in the middle of scenes sometimes that seemed odd, Again, that's not making excuses. It's not a perfect movie. But if they were able to do those few little things, I think you'd have like a classic. And as it stands now, it's a really fun Hellboy movie. Yeah. But yes, never mind Hellboy. We're talking about Stranger Things. It just stars David Harbour, and I love that man. So, but yes, I'm I my prediction is pretty damn similar to yours. I feel like 
we've gotten to know the Duffers from like seeing them in interviews now and watching them grow and fine tune and, and kind of retcon a few of their own maybe missteps over a four year uh, or a four season storyline. And I think that those two dudes must be so excited if they have the money that I think they have now from Netflix for this season. And Tim pointed out one of my main cruxes, which is the kids are getting too old to, to try and like pull the wool over people's eyes by having them crouch in, in the framing and stuff. <laughs> so if there is this time jump that has to happen, what I'm hoping for is season five opens with a flashback that we don't know is a flashback. And then it cuts to reality in a present time. And what I fucking want and what I'm hoping for is the upside down has now become the right side up. It is taken over. I'll take half the earth with a smile. Maybe the whole earth. I want more than just the state. Like it, it's, we've already exhausted our military. People have done everything they could. They can't stop it. And to pick up with a, a storyline where you've got the kids at their age that they are now, and they're all like living in this horrible scenario, you know, hiding from these different demons and everything and trying to formulate a way to really figure out and take down the big bad. I yeah. don't know what that will be, but I feel like Vecna, they never really made him dead dead. And I think he's going to kind of reconfigure or maybe he'll stay in that that swarm of, of like matter yeah. or he'll almost be like a Sauron type of thing. And I'm hoping, and I'm hoping for all you fans, I'm hoping that Eddie gets brought back as some sort of like almost a physical general to take the physical place of Vecna not being his physical self. So maybe you would have Eddie with a kernel of Eddie deep inside him, but he's really just a puppet for Vecna. And he's sort of taking... The Duffers once said that they based the vibe of Vecna on the, the Night King from Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. They they said that in an interview. So, I don't know. That's stuck in my head. And I'm like, well, maybe maybe the human beings that are living on our planet are now going to be kind of having, like, white contact lenses and maybe a couple little bits of upside down, like, like vines growing on them. And maybe they're going to be his masses. And the whole thing would have to culminate in 11 exhausting her her energy and dying to close the rift and save everyone and bring the upside down you know like an order restoring some sort of order i'm also imagining max is going to come back like a lucio fulci character you know with, with, with the milky <laughs> eyes like from the beyond i think she's going to be blind and connected to him and she'll have like probably some awesome limp like Christopher Walken in the dead zone or some shit. So she's going to be like, like redheaded dead zone, Christopher Walken. And then you're going to have Will like uh, Tim had hoped for. Will's going to get to rise and be like this, you know, this badass of some sort. That's yeah. what I'm hoping. I mean, I don't know if they could deliver all that, but I feel like they could, if given the time and the budget, I think, I think these two dudes and the wonderful team, the production team they've built, They've got awesome production designers. They've got really good costume people. Like, it's all there. I yeah. could see it being a bleak, almost bringing that Terminator vibe full circle, you know, of it being like future where Cyberdyne took over. Yeah. The same kind of idea. I, I don't know. Like a very I hope it's not apocalypse. bad. I, I just want it to be good. That's all I want from it is for yeah. it to be good. And just give Will a different haircut. Oh, my God. Like, if please. we do a time jump. Maybe 
he'll get singed in a battle so that like part of his hair doesn't grow back. He's got this like actually that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, just like, like a side fade. From yeah, just like just the side scarring. fade mushroom, like half a mushroom cap. You know that that would be cool. But yeah, like I don't think they're going to disappoint. I, I really yeah. don't. I, I've sort of rolled with the punches. They have not given me a perfect journey, but it's asinine to think that anyone could create a TV show that every viewer will think is perfectly suited to what they wanted. I do know that Erin, who who does not get too critical about things that she's enjoying, she kind of pointed out to me towards the end of this season that she felt it was it was teeter-tottering on the Return of the King problem of almost like too many wrap-ups. <laughs> um, and I agree with her in the fact that we're all intelligent viewers that are paying attention. So we all know how each person feels about each other. And I understand that they wanted to show that, but I do think they maybe showed it a little, like a little too much in some spots. I also have this deeply rooted feeling that season four was supposed to be the end. And I feel like that break they took might have been when they realized upon the finishing touches, I think they realized that we're going to do a fifth season. Like Netflix wants it, the viewership wants it. And I could almost see them recutting this season to not be an ending, but actually be a continuation. And some of what might have been kept as character beats within this season four might have actually been some of the things that were written as the ending of the season with these characters. It would kind of make sense because there is a very like, we're done with this kind of feel to some of it, but we know it isn't like we completely know it's not the end. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I'm excited for for what's coming. We're going to have to wait like two years to come back to this, but maybe we'll like re-air the first four. Like when we do our five, maybe yeah. we'll like, we'll bring it all back. I mean, it's always up there. It's not going anywhere. We'll re-promote it and try and get people excited again. And, and you could follow the whole thing. We'll, and we'll do a director's cut where it'll be, I'll put all five episodes as one run. So you can sit down and listen <laughs> to five and a half hours. Just do like, yeah, a huge thing. <laughs> So hopefully you enjoyed everybody's thoughts in addition to ours in regards to what's going to happen in season five. In terms of letting us know what your thoughts are on season five or where you think this is going or what your thoughts are on season four, we'd still love to hear it. We get a lot of messages and we really appreciate all of you guys. So feel free to email us at don'topenthispodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at don'topenthispod. And Mike, if they want to find us on Instagram, where would that be? The same place as always. For me, you can go to Falsigno Art. For Tim, you could find him at Mr. Time. And if you want to leave some of your comments on our Instagram page, that is don't open this podcast. So I think that wraps up our season four, which, as we said last time, it is bittersweet. But we will see you, I guess, in two years time for season five but that doesn't mean you're not going to get any more don't open this podcast in the meantime to our regular listeners you're actually going to be happy because all that bullshit where we said we were going to do the second part of werewolves the second part of this (laughs) we we didn't think we were going to be doing the stranger things thing in the middle but we will be back to our regularly scheduled podcast with all of those second parters we still have to do 80 slashers there's a lot we have to cover. There's a lot. We we have a lot of other ideas in the mix of starting up our Passport to Terror for different foreign films. We have all of our director deep dives for kind of that post-mortem of going back through all of their collections. So 
there's a lot on the horizon for Don't Open This Podcast, so feel free to subscribe. Feel free to leave us a review or rating on iTunes or any of the Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts just to help other people find us. And that way you can share how much you love this if you love listening to the show. Because we love you almost as much as you love Eddie Munson. I love you, man. This has been Don't Open This Podcast. Thank you.